The title of my talk this evening is there on the screen. It's called ISIS, Islam, and the End Times. So let's start with prayer. Let's ask God to help us, to bless us. We need his help. We always need his help. And I I definitely do. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you for your guidance. And we pray for your Holy Spirit. You've brought a group of us together this evening to hear the word of the Lord. And we pray, please, bless us and help me as I share this information. Please guide my mind and speak to our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, with a topic like that, it should put us on the edge of our seats because I think it's safe to say that we all know that we are living in the end times. And something else we know, and that is that Islam, or at least radical Islam, has definitely become a major player in what's happening in the world. Would you agree with that? And people are thinking about this subject. Uh, Groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, these terrorist organizations have done a lot of damage. And they have killed a lot of people. They have shed a lot of innocent blood. And it's, just, you know, it's in the news over and over and over and over again. Uh, the terrorist attack in Paris, November 13, 2015, uh, that is still fresh on a lot of people's minds. It was... Uh, a nightmare, 130 people were slaughtered. And I don't know if you heard this or not, but the, the heavy metal group that was performing a concert on that Friday night when these ISIS militants stormed this concert hall, they had just started singing a song called Kiss the Devil. And that's when these militants barged in and began killing people. And, uh, you know, I thought about that and I thought, if we choose to go with the devil, we lose, at some point, the Lord's protection. And there's a big lesson for us in that. But anyway, uh, that event shocked the world. Coming more closer to home, at least to me personally, I think about what happened in San Bernardino last year. My mother lives not far from where this took place. Uh, I was speaking in Loma Linda, not far from where this happened, just a few weeks later. I went to school at La Sierra, not far from where this, this, uh, this, this couple, husband and wife, pledged support and loyalty to ISIS, barged in to this center and started, started shooting. You know, just to think of the tragedies of these kind of things happening and the world is watching, they're watching these events. Uh, I was, I posted this on my Facebook page, here's, here's a picture right after the San Bernardino shooting took place. Uh, here is a picture of the people, many of them, I, I believe these are the ones that were victims 
Uh, and then the headline there says that Muslim groups raise $134,000 for San Bernardino shooting victims and their families. And, and I was very happy to see this. And I put this on my Facebook page and a lot of people responded to this. And, and it simply shows that not all Muslims are terrorists. And there's a whole lot of Muslims out there that had no sympathy whatsoever with what these people did or what ISIS is doing, what Al-Qaeda is doing, what these different groups are doing. And they raised a whole lot of money to help the victims, or at least the families of the victims and, and some of those who survived. And, and that just makes a big statement to us that when you think of Islam and when you think of Muslims, it does not mean that they're all out there to barge in to people's uh, concert halls and to blow up uh, suicide vests and to shoot innocent people. People are people. And I just wanted you to know that I'm, I'm very much aware of that. And so I want to make that clear as we get into this meeting and as we go deeper. How the current presidential candidates are deciding to deal with the threat of terrorism is a huge issue in American presidential politics. Isn't that right? I mean, a lot of people are, are very concerned about this. What are we gonna do about our borders? What are we gonna do about these, ter these terrorist attacks? How are we gonna protect our people? Islam, terrorism, ISIS, it's on the front burner and this is one of the big issues that the public is thinking about. Whoever gets into the White House, how are you going to handle this threat? What are you going to do? What will your policies be? Here's a recent issue of Time Magazine that came out. And there's the front cover. And the words there are World War ISIS. And you see the Eiffel Tower there going back to what happened in Paris. World War ISIS. Will there be a world war over ISIS? Will ISIS be able to accomplish that? Uh, it's no secret if you look into their religion that they have dreams of global conquest. They actually have an eschatology or a, an understanding or a belief, I should say, of what's supposed to happen in the end times. And their view is that at some point uh, they are going to going to rule the world. You know, that's their view. Uh, that Allah, their understanding of God, is going to bless them and that that's what's going to happen. Now, the question is, you know, is that, is that possible? Is it in the cards? Is it in the book? Is it in the prophecy? As Seventh-day Adventist Bible-believing, prophecy-minded Christians... It is a very relevant question these days. And that question is, what is the role of Islam in prophecy? What is uh, its role, if any, in end time events? This is a question that is on the front burner of a lot of people's minds. Wouldn't you agree? No doubt about it. So we're going to talk about that. That is our focus tonight. And before we get into the book of Revelation, I want to take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. 
2 Peter chapter 1, and I'll put a Bible on the screen here. And part of the verse on the screen from the King James Version, I've got, I'm reading from the New King James, but I like the way the King James starts out in verse 19. And there it is on the screen. Peter said, we have also a more, and what's that next word? Sure. sure. And what's the next word? The word. And what's the next word? Two words. Of prophecy. Right. I have been impressed with that. The New King James says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. We have a more sure word of prophecy. There is nothing in this world, and I mean nothing, that is really solid except for the word of God. Uh, this world is a mess. This world is very uncertain. Uh, even the ground that we walk on is not, you know, there's no guarantee it's not going to move. Uh, where my family, we moved out of Los Angeles, or I, I grew up in Los Angeles. My wife and I grew up in California. She grew up in the north part. I grew up in the south. And we've moved back there. We lived in California for a while. But we finally decided to get out of California and to move up to North Idaho. California is loaded with uh, fault lines and earthquakes. I've been in many as I was growing up. The ground was not even certain under my feet. But we thought, well, now that we're living in Idaho, North Idaho in the Coeur d'Alene area, surely we're, we're not going to have any rumbling up there. But lo and behold, we've had a number of earthquakes not too long ago in the Sandpoint area. And I mean, there's just, there's nowhere on, on the planet that is really completely safe or solid. Isn't that right? Nothing. Except the word of God. God's word is sure. And I've been through, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for almost 37 years. I've been through a lot of, of battles, a lot of struggles. And I have learned through experience, through God's working in my life, that I need to depend on the word of the Lord above everything else. One word from God is more valuable than 10,000 words of men. And even if those men happen to be quote-unquote experts, even the experts can be wrong. But God's word is solid. And that verse right there says we have a more sure word. And it's a sure word of prophecy. God has given us prophecy to help us to understand, to help us to understand, and I'm going to say three things, to help us to understand the past and the present and the future. All of those things. It's interesting. Just, just, uh, it just spoke to me tonight that in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, at the very beginning of the book, God is introduced as the one who is and who was and who is to come. God Almighty. He is, he was, and he is to come. And prophecy helps us to understand the past, the present, 
and the future. And it's a sure word. Now, if you go back to the text, the Bible tells us what the goal of prophecy is. It says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed. We do well if we listen to the prophecies of the Bible as a light that shines in a dark place. See that? God's, God's prophetic light is like a, or his word is like a light that shines in the dark place. It says, until the day dawns and the morning star arise in your hearts. And who's that talking about? Jesus. It's talking about Jesus, right. So, so Peter in this text is telling us that God's prophecies, his word is sure, and we do well if we listen to it and heed it. And the purpose of prophecy is to shine a light into the dark place of this world and ultimately to lift up Jesus so that Jesus will shine in our hearts. That's what it's all about. We don't want to focus on uh, prophecy without Jesus because Jesus is really the goal of prophecy. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book comes from him. So he needs to be the center of everything that we do. The good news is that the king is coming. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And no matter how dark it gets down here, we have a hope. We have a hope. And I believe this with all all my heart. I really, really do. Now, uh, let's take a look at some things in the book of Revelation. Part of prophecy, the sure word of prophecy, is something called the, the seven trumpets. In Revelation. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 9. And we're going to have a little Bible study specifically tonight on the fifth and the sixth trumpets. I want to zero in on this on this, this evening. Seven trumpets. You know the book of Revelation talks about seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. It talks about seven seals in Revelation uh, 5 and 6. It talks about seven trumpets in Revelation 8 and 9. And then we have seven plagues in Revelation 16. And there's numerous places in the book of Revelation where the number seven is used over and over and over again. Seven is God's number. God made the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And the reason why we're going to take a look at this is because I'm I'm convinced that this has something to do with with our subject, dealing with with Islam. That's why we're going to do this. Now, I'll make a confession to you, and that is for most of the years of my ministry, as I've held prophecy seminars for Amazing Facts and uh, for the Texas Media Center and for End Time Insights and now for White Horse Media, uh, I have typically shied away from the trumpets. When I have a sequence of meetings, maybe I'll go 21 or 22 nights, I'll talk about Daniel 2 or Daniel 7 or Revelation 13 and 14 and 16, but I've, I've never had an evangelistic meeting where I have walked people through the seven trumpets. I've just never done it. Uh, and probably the reason for that is because these trumpets have been rather difficult for me to really wrap my mind around, to really get a handle on. I haven't really understood them, and I 
my tendency and my, my policy, you could say, is to preach about things that I know about. And if I don't know about it, then I tend to shy away from it. But as a result of the prominence of the issue of Islam in the world these days, I have taken another look at this issue. Where is Islam in Bible prophecy? Is Islam in Bible prophecy? What about the trumpets? Now, in that light, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 9. Turn to Revelation 9. Revelation 9, the first four trumpets are found in chapter 8. The fifth and sixth trumpets are found in chapter 9. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are referred to as woes. Woes upon the earth. We know that from chapter 8, verse 13. It says, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. So there's uh, first four trumpets, and then there's the last three. And the last three are called woes. Now let's take a look at Revelation chapter 9. Let's start out with verses 1 to 3. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says, Then the fifth angel sounded. This is trumpet number 5. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. So there is Revelation 9, verses 1 to 3. Now, let me just share with you some some simple facts. Uh, Obviously, if you look at Christian history and even today uh, in the Adventist church or in other churches, there's a lot of different opinions on these trumpets. Would you agree with that? There's different views, different winds, different interpretations of the trumpets. But let me share with you, it is a fact of history that the majority of Protestant commentaries and credible scholars who have looked at these verses in Christian history, they have viewed the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet as symbolizing the rise and the progress of the armies of Muhammad, which decimated what was called the Holy Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire went down, then they tried to rebuild it as a Holy Roman Empire, as a church-state combination. And that church-state combination was decimated by the armies of Muhammad. And that is, that is a fact. And I can uh, illustrate this very easily. Uh, Dr. Treyer said that the application of Revelation 9 to the Islamic invasions 
enjoyed one of the greatest interpretive consensuses of the second Christian millennium, especially among Protestants. And he's right, he's right, that this is the way this prophecy was understood. Here's another one from Albert Barnes. Albert Barnes wrote a major commentary, well-respected in the Protestant world. He said, uh, wrote, with surprising unanimity, commentators have agreed in regarding this to the empire of the Saracens or the Arab Muslims or to the rise and the progress of the religion and the empire set up by Muhammad. So Albert Barnes seconded John Fox, who wrote the classic book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a, a well-known book. You can go to any Christian bookstore and find it or order it. Uh, he stated that it is clearer than light itself that this is a prophecy of the Muslim conquests. Here's another one from Adam Clark. He also wrote a famous commentary. The whole of this symbolic description, symbolic description of an overwhelming military force agrees very well with the troops of Muhammad. And here's one more, Matthew Henry, who wrote probably the most respected Bible commentary ever as far as its uh, popularity among conservative Christians. He said that Revelation 9 was a prophecy, quote, of the armies of the Mohammedan Empire. And yeah, I have one more. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, he said all this agrees with the slaughter which the Saracens made for a long time after Muhammad's death. So you get my point, that when you look at history and look at commentators, look at Protestant interpreters, uh, the vast majority of them at least the largest percentage of them, have understood Revelation 9, the fifth trumpet, the first woe, as a reference to the armies of Muhammad. Now let's look at the text. Let's go back to Revelation 9, verse 1. It says, The fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, the great scientist, he interpreted the star to be a reference to Muhammad himself as the leader of Islam. The bottomless pit, when you look at the Greek word for bottomless pit, the Greek word is abusos, and it basically means the abyss. And uh, scholars have applied this to the wasteland of Saudi Arabia, to the desert area, the bottomless pit. Verse two says that he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. This has been applied to the smoke of the religion of Islam that came out of the Saudi Arabian desert. And when you think of the sun, what does the sun represent in the book of Revelation or in the Bible? Take a guess. The sun represents Jesus. In the book of Malachi, it talks about, uh, then shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in its wings. And so the sun is a symbol of Christ. And if you look at the, the details of the religion of Islam, it is a fact that uh, Muhammad did not believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. Muhammad did not believe that God had a son at all. Muhammad did not believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. 
And the religion of Islam, from a doctrinal perspective, darkens the sun of who Jesus Christ is, and it's the same today. Now, what do you think the air represents? Jesus said that the wind blows where it wills. Yeah, the air represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's goal is to point people to the sun, to point people to Jesus. And in Islam, there is no Holy Spirit, at least not as described in the Bible. And Jesus is not seen as the Son of God and as the one who died for the sins of the world. And so this is the way Protestants have looked at this. They've seen, they've seen the darkening of the Son of Righteousness and of the Holy Spirit who points to Jesus. Now, verse 3 says, Then out of the smoke what came out? It says locusts. Right. Locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, this is very interesting. I've done a lot of thinking about this and looked at a lot of different Bible verses. Uh, Locusts, and it also mentions scorpions. See that? Locusts and scorpions. These are creatures that are specific to the desert and to Saudi Arabia. If you look at the Bible, if you look at the lion of Babylon, there were lions that were in Babylon. Remember, Daniel in Persia was thrown to the lions. The Persians had bears. Uh, There were bears in the mountains of Persia. There were leopards in Greece. And God used animals to represent nations, and the animals were indigenous to those nations. Just like Babylon had lions, bears had Persians. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Persia had bears. Yeah. And uh, Greece had leopards. Saudi Arabia has scorpions and locusts. These creatures are desert creatures. Now, they're not only in Saudi Arabia. They're in other places too, but they are are also particular creatures that are found in in that desert. So God is using creatures to represent a territory that are indigenous to that territory. Now, here's something very interesting. Keep your finger here in Revelation and take a look at Judges chapter 7, verse 12. Judges chapter 7. And what we're doing right now is we're going into the things that were. And we're going to talk about the things that are. And we're going to talk about the things that are coming. What was, what is, and what's coming. And I'm convinced the best way to understand what is is to have a grasp on what was, and then what is, and then what's coming. If we want to know what's coming, we have to have a a big understanding of a great controversy that we are in the midst of. Uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 12. This is a fascinating text. goes back to Old Testament days. Judges 7, 12. says, The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east... They were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. So here are, here's a group of people, the Amalekites and the Midianites. They are called the people of the east, east of Israel, 
and they're coming against the Israelites like locusts. Locusts coming from the east. And what's east of Israel? Saudi Arabia. Now here's another text. Go to chapter 6 and look at verse 5. This is also talking about the Midianites and the Amalekites, which we know from verse, uh, verse 3. And it's, it's interesting in verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The Israelites went into apostasy. And so God delivered them over to the people of the east. And then it says in verse 5 that they would come upon their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So when Israel was in apostasy, here come the people of the east like locusts that come to destroy. You following me? This is the imagery that's picked up in the book of Revelation. It's the same, same imagery. Now this is very interesting. Look at this. Here is a, a map of the common range of desert locusts. Here's, uh, here's Saudi Arabia. Here's Africa. Israel is right here. You go up here. Eventually you get into Syria and then Turkey. You go to Greece. You go to Rome. This is just a simple map of, uh, of the Middle East. And this is, the, this is the direction of the locusts. See that? Now watch this. It's the same direction that the Arab Muslims followed. Same direction. Here is a map of the Saracen Empire, and the Saracens basically refers to the, the, uh, the, Arab, the Arab Muslims who, after Muhammad died, spread out from Mecca and from Medina and from this, they conquered uh, location after location, and they spread out into North Africa, they spread out all the way over here into India. Uh, they went out, they took over the whole area of Israel. That's why the Crusades took place, was because the, they wanted to free the Holy Land from the Muslims. And they even went into uh, southern France. They pushed their way across Asia Minor, heading toward Europe. So here's the map of the progress, the range of the desert locusts, and it's almost identical to the map of the Arab Muslims when they spread out in the seventh century. So let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 9 talks about the description of these locusts, these warriors. Revelation 9 in verse 4, it says they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And Dr. Treyer brings this out, that the command was that these locusts would attack those that did not have the seal of God. In other words, they were, they were to attack the, the power that had changed the law of God. It was a judgment against the power that removed the seal from the law of God. And that's what happened 
in the 6th century, 7th century, 8th century, the reason why the majority of Christians today keep Sunday instead of the Bible Sabbath is because, this, because uh, the seal of God was taken out of his law. It was changed by the papal power. And this is a judgment upon the power that has removed the seal from the law of God. Now you keep going in verse, uh, verse 7. It says, the shape of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had the hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. So this is describing uh, the, the, these horses and these armies that would do the desolation that they did. And it's very interesting historically that the Arab Muslims that swarmed out of the desert, they did have uh, yellow crowns. They wore yellow turbans. They did have long hair. They dread the Arab warriors let their hair grow long. They were very fierce like lion's teeth. They had breastplates. They, I've seen pictures of, of horses totally covered in breastplate armor. And that's the characteristic of those, uh, of those horses. Verse 10 said they had tails like scorpions. They were stings. There were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. Did you see that? Their power was to hurt men for five months. Verse 11 says they had a king over them who was the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has a name which is Apollyon. Apollyon means destroyer. Now, here's another interesting little map here. Here again we have uh, Saudi Arabia. This is northern Africa. This is moving into Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. There's Greece. There's Rome. The Roman Empire's headquarters used to be right there in, in Rome, but Constantine moved it over to Constantinople in 330. And then eventually the Roman Empire went down. It was destroyed by the barbarians, by the invasions that conquered it in the uh, 5th and, and 6th centuries. But Constantinople now was the headquarters of Christianity in the East, based upon the name Constantine, Constantinople. And the scripture says, verse 10 mentions the five months, and then verse 11 talks about they had a king over them. So here's five months, which Bible prophecy would give that a day for a year, which would come out to 150 years. And then verse 11 says they had a king over them. Now, there's a connection between the five months, 150 years, and the coming of, of a king over them. Now, historically, the first Muslim leader who was classified as a king was a man by the name of Othman, or sometimes they called him Osman. Uh, Othman, who became the founder of, guess what, empire. Right, the Ottoman Empire. Right. And his goal, the goal of, the, of Othman was to conquer. This was the crown jewel of the East, was for the armies of, of Islam to take that city and to conquer it. That was his goal. Gibbon, who is probably the most famous 
historian of the past dealing with the history and the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire, he said that Othman moved into the territory of Constantinople to try to conquer it on this particular date. He mentioned this date, July 27, 1299. This was the date that he moved in and tried to conquer it. And it's interesting that for the next 150 years, from July 27, 1299 to July 27, 1449, Othman and his, uh, his followers, the Ottoman Turks, were unable to conquer Constantinople. They hammered it again and again and again and again and again. The prophecy says that they would be able to torment and to hurt, but not to kill. And they were not able to conquer the empire. Not until 150 years later. That date, 150 years later, was July 27, 1449, where the emperor inside of Constantinople, his quote-unquote Christian emperor, he then submitted to Muslim authority, to the authority of, of the Ottoman Turks. And that was 150 years later that he did that. Now, that was verse 10 and 11, but now look at verse 12. Revelation 9, verse 12. Revelation 9, verse 12 says, one woe is what? Is past. Now, do you see any significance to that? One woe is past, and there's two more coming. Remember, Revelation says that God is, past, is in the past, he's present, and he's future. That they're all important. The past is important, the present is important, and the future is important. And this verse tells us that the, there comes a time when the fifth trumpet is over. It's behind us. Now, there are, there are uh, those that would like to take the trumpets and apply them all to the future. But to me, this text is pretty significant. It says there's a woe, there comes a point in time where the woe is behind us. See that? We, remember, we have a more sure word of prophecy. This is a word of prophecy that we need to hold on to. We need to hold on, and I'll tell you the significance of this in a little while. So that's the, fir, that's the fifth trumpet and the first woe. Now let me go to the next one. Look at verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. Actually, I should have read all of verse 12. Verse 12 says, One woe is past, and behold, there are still two more woes that are coming after this. So one's behind, and there's two more coming. Right? So then verse 13 mentions the fifth trumpet, or the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now, if you look at the sanctuary, where was the golden altar? Was the golden altar in the most holy place? Or was the golden altar in the holy place? It was in the holy place. Now, this tells us something. It tells us that the sixth trumpet is a trumpet that applies to the time period of the holy place. Not the most holy. So if someone wants to take the sixth trumpet and apply it to today or to the future, they, they've gone beyond the text. The text puts the sixth trumpet during the time of the golden altar. Are you following me? Okay. 
Now notice what happens. It says, uh, it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now in the fifth trumpet, they only hurt and tormented, but in the sixth, they killed. Now there's significance, significance to this. Here's our map again. This used to be Constantinople, but it was turned over to uh, the Turkish Ottoman Empire, and they changed the name to Istanbul. And that's the name of it today. If you go to Turkey, to the capital of Turkey, you're going to go to Istanbul, which used to be Constantinople. And Constantinople was given the name because of Constantine, who was a quote-unquote Christian emperor. He really wasn't, but he claimed to be moved his seat uh, east, changed the name of the city there to Constantinople. You have a series of Christian emperors, but eventually there's a, sh a switch from the Christian emperors over to uh, Turkish or Muslim control. That switch especially happened in the year uh, 1453, when Constantinople went down under the waves of the Ottoman Turks. You've got the Arab, the, the fifth trumpet deals with the first expansion of the Arab Muslims, and the second, uh, the sixth trumpet deals with the second wave of the founding of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman the Empire uh, sacked Constantinople in 1453. And here you have a time period now in verse 15 the time period of the second woe would be an hour, which when you do the math, it's one twenty-fourth of a day, which comes out to 15 days, and a day representing a year, a month, 30 days in a month represents 30 years, a year represents 360 uh, days or years, and when you add them all up, if you do the math, if you like math, you've got 391 years and 15 days. 391 years and 15 days. We start the prophecy with July 27, 1449, which was the end of the 150 years. The 150 years started in 1299, ended in 1449, 150 years when the Ottoman Empire tried to conquer Constantinople, couldn't do it. And then after that period was over, they did it and they took over. And so you have a period here when you add this up from July 27, 1449, it comes out to August 11, 1840. That's the date. Now, let me show you something very, very significant. Josiah Lynch, have you heard of him? Yes. He was an associate of William Miller during the Millerite movement. He made a prediction two years before it happened that in August, or sometime in 1840, and then he, he pinpointed the date, eventually August 11th, he said that is going to be a very significant day in the history of the Ottoman Empire. He made that, he made that prediction. Notice what Ellen White wrote about that in the book The Great Controversy. This is what she said. Great Controversy, page 334. 
Ellen White wrote that in the year 1840, another remarkable what? Fulfillment of Bible, fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, Josiah Litch, one of the leading ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an exposition of Revelation 9, predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown in A.D. 1840, sometime in the month of August. And only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, allowing the first period, the 150 years, to have been exactly fulfilled before Decosis ascended the throne by the permission of the Turks. And that was the, back at the beginning of the period where the Christian emperor then yielded his supremacy to the Ottoman Empire. And if we take that and we go down 391 years and 15 days, he was expecting the Turkish emperor to then yield his supremacy over to the Christian powers of Europe. Lich wrote, allowing the first period, the 150 years, to have been exactly fulfilled before Decosis ascended the throne by permission of the Turks. And that 391 years, 15 days, commenced at the close of this first period. Lich said it will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople may be expected to be broken. And this, I believe, will be found to be the case. Now, Lich said that prior to August 11, 1840. He said that on the 1st of August, 1840. He said that 10 days before the 11th. He made that prediction. And I tell you, there was a lot of people watching this when this happened. A lot of people were watching. Ellen White continues, at the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the protection of the Allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of the Christian nations. So the Christian emperor at the beginning of the period gave him his control over to the Turks. And at the end of the period, the Turkish uh, sultan gave his control over to the Christian nations. It was an exact uh, reversal of what had happened 391 years earlier. Ellen White said the event exactly fulfilled the prediction. That, now look at this. This is, why I'm, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this. When it, Revelation 9's prophecy, became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by Miller and his associates. And a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement. Now, Islam is described in Revelation 9. What movement is described in Revelation 10? We should know that. It's the Advent movement. Right, that's where they had the little book open and they ate the book and it was bitter, it was sweet, and then it was bitter. Islam is described in Revelation 9. Adventism is described in Revelation 10. Adventism grew in the wake of what happened in chapter 9. And it says that when, when Lich's interpretation became known and when on August 11, 1840, the Ottoman power yielded over its supremacy to the allied powers of Europe. Now, you might think this is kind of old, dusty history, but I tell you, some amazing things happened back then. It says a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement. Josiah Litch received about a thousand letters from unbelievers, and they said, we have given up our battle against the Bible, and we are ready to join the Advent movement. 
Dr. Treyer, in his book on the seals and the trumpets, he goes into great detail quoting historical, secular sources recognizing the significance of what happened on August 11, 1840 to the decline of the Ottoman Empire. He's got all the documentation. And some people think, no, this, this can't be right. Today they think this can't be right. But we've got, first of all, the witness of the spirit of prophecy. We also have what happened in history, and we have the effect that it produced on the Advent movement. And so you have all these people, it says here, men of learning, they weren't stupid, and position united with Miller, both in preaching and in publishing his views. And from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. There was a tremendous boost given to the Advent movement because of the sure word of prophecy. Because the Adventists understood the fifth trumpet, that it reaches a point where it's past. The sixth trumpet, where it reaches a point where it's past. And we're moving down toward the time of the seventh trumpet. See that? And when, when people saw that the Adventists understood the prophecy, it gave tremendous power to the preaching of, uh, of, our, of our movement. Now think about this. There's a 2,300-year prophecy in the Bible, isn't there? Is that important? There's a 490-year prophecy in the Bible. Is that important? There's a 1,260-year prophecy in the Bible. Is that important? There's a 150-year prophecy and a 391-year prophecy in, Dan in Revelation chapter 9. Is that important? They all have their place in prophetic history. If we're going to understand the present, and if we're going to understand the future, we have to understand the sure word of prophecy as it relates to the past. Some people say, well, you know, you're talking about 1840. That was a long time ago. That's not relevant today. Well, let me ask you. How relevant is the cross today? When did that happen? 2,000 years ago. Is that still relevant for today? Is your life affected today? Is your future affected today by what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Yes, of course. Of course it is. No doubt about it. Now, I don't have time to go into all these details uh, of this prophecy, but go down to chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, and look at verse 14. Revelation 11, verse 14, there comes a point in time where the Bible says the second woe is what? The second woe is past. And behold, what's coming? The third woe is coming quickly. So the first woe is past. The second woe is past. And the third woe is coming. Now what happens during the third woe? 
I hope you've been following me. I hope this hasn't been uh, boring to you to give you a little history lesson. And I'm not doing this just to stay in the past, as you can imagine. The reason why we understand the past is to understand the present so we can understand the future. Now, let me, let me tell you something. If we lose, as Ellen White said, the principles of prophetic interpretation that were established by William Miller and his associates, if we lose sight of those basic historical principles of the study of the Bible, then we're not going to understand what's happening now. When, uh, when Pope Francis comes and speaks to Congress, we're going to see this as really not much to, to worry about or think about. As the final events begin to unfold right in front of our eyes, we're going to miss the significance of them because we've, we've been drifting. We're drifting on an ocean of prophetic speculation. So we're no longer able to understand what is happening right now. Now let's go back to Revelation. I've got a little bit more to do. I'm going to wrap this all up. Give me a little bit more time. We're going to bring all this together. And I tell you, this is, this is very significant. Revelation 11, verse 14 says, the second woe is past. And I believe the second woe is past. I don't believe we should reapply the trumpets to the future. I don't believe we should do that. You know, those winds are blowing among us. Did you know that? Yes. It's not, it's not sound theology. It's not the sure word of prophecy. It's not based on scripture. If you ask someone who applies these things to the future, or if you ask someone to, Dr. Treyer talks about the futurists and the spiritualizers. They spiritualize away the trumpets or they apply it all to the future. He talks about that and he, you know, he says, and I say, if you, if you ask someone who's a spiritualizer of the prophecies, or someone who's in the future, you ask them, when was the fifth trumpet passed? At what point? And they won't know. When was the sixth trumpet passed? They have no idea. They have no clue. All of these time periods are important. They're all important because they provide the framework for us to understand Revelation 13 and the final events. So what happens during the time of the, of the third woe, the seventh trumpet? Look at Revelation 11, verse 15. Revelation 11, 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces, and they worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come, because you have taken your great power and you have reigned. That is the final conclusion when the seventh trumpet finally sounds. 
when the seventh trumpet sounds, has the first four trumpets sounded? Yes. Can we base that in history? Yes. Has the fifth trumpet sounded? Yes. Can we see its fulfillment in prophecy? Yes. Has the sixth trumpet sounded? Yes. Can we see its fulfillment in prophecy? Yes. Based on the sure word of prophecy, is the seventh trumpet going to sound? You better believe it. Yes, it's going to sound, and it points us to the ultimate goal of the seventh trumpet is when King Jesus takes his power and reigns. That's where we're heading. That's where Bible prophecy is heading. Now, prior to the second coming, notice what happens during that final time. Look at verse 18. Now, this is going to be as relevant as you can get. Revelation 11, verse 18 Look at the characteristics of the final time. It says the nations were what? The nations were angry. Now let me ask you, why is Donald Trump so popular today? You want to know why? It's because America is angry. A lot of anger out there. People are tired of business as usual. They're tired of the politicians. They're tired of what's happening in Washington. And whether you agree with Trump or not, which I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna get into that, the fact is that Americans are pushing for him because they're mad. The nations are angry. And it's not just America. There's a lot of anger in a lot of places. Radical Muslims are angry aren't they? ISIS is angry. Hezbollah is angry. Islamic Jihad is angry. These uh, groups are, ang are angry. So what do we say about the, back to the Muslim issue today, what do we say about the Muslims today? Well, let me give you just some quick points. As I've thought about this, pondered this, studied this, here is my conclusion. Number one, radical Muslims are angry and they are definitely players in the end times. Number two, they are, the radicals, are the children of the people of the fifth and the sixth trumpets. That's what they are. They're doing the same destructive work that went on during the time of the fifth and sixth trumpets. Number three, their goal is world domination. But number four, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because the dominance that was given to the Ottoman Empire up until 1840 is past. Number five, the radicals, the radical Muslims are contributing to making the rest of the world angry. They are making a lot of people angry and they are contributing to the idea that religious extremists should not be tolerated. Which will eventually, that conviction and anger will be directed to those who preach the third angel's message. Because we will be seen as fundamentalists. 
will be classified as religious extremists because we believe in the sure word of prophecy in the Bible. Number six, the radicals are pushing the world away from the principles of religious freedom. And they are going, and this move will contribute to the enforcement of the mark of the beast. You know that uh, the issue of protecting America from the radicals, the flip side of this has to do with religious freedom. Should we give the Muslims religious freedom? Or shouldn't we? What about the radicals? And see, these issues are creating a climate for the enforcement of the mark of the beast. Number seven, according to Revelation, the dragon and the beast and the second beast will cooperate together for the enforcement of the mark of the beast to try to bring the world under the global authority, not of the Ottoman Empire, but of the beast of Revelation 13. That's what the prophecy points to. Prophecy does not say there will be another Muslim empire. The prophecy says the whole world will follow the beast. And eventually, when that global move occurs, and we're fast moving in that direction, it will, just as the first four trumpets desolated the Roman Empire, and as the fifth and sixth trumpets decimated the quote-unquote holy Roman Empire, east and west, so when this final conglomeration around the world comes together under the authority of the beast, the blowing of the seventh trumpet will decimate it entirely. Entirely. The scripture says, after the nations were angry, what's next? What's the next line in the verse? Verse 18 says, the nations were angry, and then what? What does it say? Your wrath has come. And what does that apply to? That applies to the seven last plagues that fall upon a world that is chosen to go along with the mark of the beast. And then what does it say? Your wrath has come, and then what else? It says the time of the dead that they should be judged. And when does that take place? That's during the millennium. That's during the thousand years when all the people of the past, from Cain and all the way down through history, all those who have lived in the past are judged during the thousand years. And then it says, the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should give reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, small and great, and should finally do what? And should destroy those who destroy the earth. And this takes us down all the way to the end of the millennium when God 
completely eliminates evil from his universe. The first four trumpets were on a localized area, a third of this, a third of this, a third of this. The fifth and sixth trumpets were also localized to a third of this, a third of this, but not the seventh trumpet. The seventh woe to humanity ultimately points us to the time when the global kingdom of the devil will be wiped out forever. It's not local, it's global. It's global. Now notice verse 19. Verse 19 backs up and says, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and a great hail. What happens is that verse 19 backs up and takes us to a point in time where the temple of God is opened in heaven and the ark is seen. Now, when was the ark seen in the earthly sanctuary service? When was the most holy place opened? In the sanctuary service, the opening of the room into the most holy place took place on the Day of Atonement. The temple of God was opened. What is opened in heaven takes us into the most holy place where the law of God is. And that's a, that's a most holy place event. And it was opened after the sixth trumpet was passed, which ended on what date? In 1840. Remember, the sixth trumpet was a holy place trumpet, and it ended. And from 1840 to 1844, power was given to the Advent movement. And in 1844, the temple of God was opened, and we move into the most holy in the time of the end. And, and I want to tell you this, Adventism as a movement is based on these prophecies. Do you think that people today are kind of losing sight of why we're here? Are people losing sight of our identity? Are they losing sight of our mission? Are they losing sight of what's happening in front of us and what's coming and what we're supposed to be saying? All of this is because we've because some of us are straying from the sure word of prophecy. We've lost our knowledge of the past, so we can't see the present, and so we don't know what's coming in the future. If we want to understand what is coming and what is happening now, the 490, the 2300, the 1260, the 150, the 391, they all have their place. They all have their place in prophetic history. If we lose sight of this, we will drift in an ocean of prophetic speculation. And when the crisis hits, we'll be blown away. 
and we won't know what's going on, and we won't know what to do. Now, I want to make one more point as we wind this up, one more major point. What happened on the Day of Atonement? What happened was this. What happened was the high priest went into the most holy place. He took his finger and he sprinkled blood on the golden lid called the mercy seat underneath which was the Ten Commandments. Right? That's what happened. And when you follow the, the seven churches, when you follow the seven seals, when you follow the seven trumpets, they take you to a time period, a time at the very end, when Jesus is in the most holy place doing his closing work. His closing work in the most holy place. And his closing work is to take the blood that he shed on the cross and to apply it to the records in heaven and to the people of God, to our hearts, so he can wash our sins away. And by his grace, make us into commandment-keeping people. That's his ultimate goal, is to wash away our sins by the shedding of his blood and to develop a people who are commandment keepers. And that is what he's trying to do, and it is still available a little bit longer before the seventh trumpet sounds. Islam, and the principle still applies today, has darkened the sun and the air, darkened the Holy Spirit, darkened the gospel, darkened the message of Jesus Christ. And there are millions of dear Muslim people who are not radical, and they need the light of the sun to shine on them. They need the light of the gospel. They need the Holy Spirit. Let me finish with this, and I'll tell you a quick story. Jesus loves those who have been seduced by the dragon and all the dragon religions of today. Jesus loves those who have been seduced by the beast and all the people that belong to the beast today. Jesus loves those in America, the second beast, who have strayed away from Protestant principles. Jesus loves the children of the fifth and sixth trumpets today. Jesus loves Republicans today. He loves Donald Trump, whether you like him or whether you don't. <laughs> he does. Jesus loves Democrats today. He loves Hillary Clinton 
whether you would vote for her or whether you won't. He loves President Obama, whether you like him or whether you don't. He loves you and he loves me and those who are going to be his commandment-keeping people must be above all of this fray. Amen. Jesus loves us all. He loves everybody. And he wants to reach everybody. And that sun, which has been darkened, needs to shine. The sun needs to shine in these last days. The air needs to move and convict people and show people their need of a savior. Before the temple closes, before the seventh trumpet sounds, before the seven last plagues fall, and that's where we're heading. Once we know what has been and what is, we know what's coming. Before the temple closes, before the seventh trumpet sounds, before the seven last plagues fall, Jesus wants his light to shine. His light to shine upon the whole world. And he wants everybody to have a chance to be part of a global kingdom of God that's not ruled by Rome, it's not ruled by papal Rome, it's not ruled by America, it's not ruled by, by the Ottoman Empire or the Muslims dreaming for global conquest. It's not going to be ruled by Republicans or Democrats. It's going to be ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who's going to take his power during the time of the seventh trumpet. Praise God. And now's the time when his light needs to shine. Uh, I'll just tell you a quick little story and then we'll have prayer. Um, I live in North Idaho where it's cold in the winter. How many of you live in Texas? Most of you. You know, one thing you really have great down here in Texas, and we used to live in Texas, is you have a lot of sun. Well, we've just been through a winter in North Idaho. It's been cold. And I was so looking forward to coming down to Montgomery and spending three days and getting lots of sun. I was. So I, uh, Tuesday night when I was packing, I went online and I checked the forecast for Montgomery. And my, the forecast on my phone said that Tuesday which was that day, that Tuesday was going to be sunny. And that Wednesday, which was the day I was traveling, was going to be sunny. But that Thursday, which is the day that I'm here, is going to be cloudy and rainy. And that Friday, the day that I'm here, is going to be cloudy and rainy. And that Saturday, the day that I'm here, is going to be cloudy and rainy. And then Sunday, the day that I go back, it's going to be sunny. <laughs> That's what the forecast said. And I thought, oh, Lord. And then I thought about it today, and I thought, Lord, whether it's cloudy or whether it's not, you still shine. Amen. The sun of righteousness still shines. 
Isn't that good? No matter what's happening in our lives, no matter how cloudy things get, no matter what happens in the future, no matter how cloudy it gets, the good news is that Jesus is on his throne. He's in the most holy place. We, brothers and sisters, we have a sure word of prophecy. And we do well if we take heed because it's a light that's shining in a dark place. And one of these days, the day is going to dawn and Jesus is going to come. So let's hold on to Adventism. Hold on to the sure word of prophecy because it won't be long until Jesus comes. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for being with us. We've had a, quite a long study tonight. We've looked at the past, we've looked at the present, and we've looked at the future. And I just pray for all of us that when that future comes, that we'll be ready and that we will be with you in your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast with Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel message with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting broadcasts just like these with your financial gifts. We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's 1-800-782-4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve, W-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 130, Priest River, Idaho, 83856. Thanks for your support, and may God richly bless your day.